Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science of the past week. Our lead story today once again concerns the coronavirus. Fully 44% of the U.S. population has had at least one shot. 31% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated, and the results have now come in. After analyzing not hundreds, not thousands, but tens of millions of pieces of data, we now realize that the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna are 95% effective. This is far beyond the original expectations. Scientists are elated by the news, but let's be real. The pandemic is not over. We have a long ways to go before we hit herd immunity, which would be around 70% being fully vaccinated. And the bad news is that India, the virus is out of control. You're talking about millions of people flooding into the hospitals. You're talking about funeral parlors being deluged with there's basically no room for all the people that have perished because of the virus. And the question is, what happened? And then we'll see a few things about outer space and the battle of the billionaires. Yes, the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, is now suing the second richest man in the world, Elon Musk of SpaceX, for rights to be the one to put a lunar lander on that celestial body. So we'll say a few things about that. What that means when private enterprise begins to dominate the space program. Well, lawsuits are going to be inevitable. And as Elon Musk also mentioned, going to Mars is a risky business. In fact, he predicted that some people may die as a consequence. Shocking news, but of course, that is correct. And then we'll say something about the medical front, Alzheimer's disease. We've had a number of programs about Alzheimer's disease, mainly talking about how it works, new developments in terms of understanding the disease, but what about a cure? Well, for the first time, medical history may be in the making, we're not sure, but at least in mice, a way to reverse the ravages of Alzheimer's disease has been found at the Albert Einstein Medical School, and we're going to have to see whether it can also transfer its magical properties to humans. And then, before we begin, I'd like to say thank you to all the people that picked up a copy of my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. It's because of you that the book hit the bestseller list on the New York Times, Amazon, in the United States, and also in the United Kingdom, because I think it deals with a hunger that people have. People want to know, is there a single unifying principle, a paradigm, a theory, some kind of way in which to understand the vast, rich diversity of everything we see in the universe? And the answer is possibly yes. Music. Music is perhaps the only paradigm rich enough to explain the infinite variety of forms that we see around us and as you know, music is created by vibrating objects, whether it's a drum head, a reed, your vocal cords. When things vibrate, they create music. 
music in turn, which can be categorized and analyzed using mathematics. But when you talk about the music of subatomic particles, you're now talking about string theory, which at the present time is the leading candidate for a theory of everything. And so each note on a tiny, tiny vibrating string corresponds to a particle in the same way that a drum head, in the same way that a reed, in the same way that a violin string, each mode corresponds to a note. Well, these notes are called subatomic particles. So physics is the harmonies you can write on these vibrating strings. Chemistry is the melodies you can make when these strings bump into each other. The universe is a symphony of strings. And then the mind of God, the mind of God that Einstein spent 30 years of his life chasing after, the mind of God would be cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. Well, find out about what the excitement is about. There are hundreds of physicists at the leading laboratories around the world, in Geneva, Switzerland, elsewhere in the great capitals of the world, working to complete this dream of a final theory, the God equation. So find out by getting a copy of my latest book. And different public radio stations are using it as a fundraising tool. My publisher has donated copies of the book to be given away to raise funds to support public radio. And so I support the mission of this radio station. I support public radio. And that's why my publisher has donated copies that you can get by calling and finding out from the website of your local radio station if the book is being offered. And also, if you know a young person who's just beginning to show an interest in science, perhaps this book is for them. I know, because when I was eight years old, something happened which changed my life completely. A great scientist had just died, and all the evening newspapers had a picture of his desk. That's all. Just a picture of his desk showing the unfinished manuscript of his greatest unfinished theory. Well, I was shocked. I was mesmerized. I said to myself, why couldn't he finish that theory? Why didn't he ask his mother? It's a homework assignment, right? Well, I went to the library and I found out this man's name was Albert Einstein. And that book that he couldn't finish was to be the God equation, the theory of everything, the theory that would explain the rich diversity of everything we see around us. We'll find out about this is a 2,000-year search going all the way back to the Greek philosophers to find this organizing principle, this unifying paradigm that makes sense of this great universe of ours, and it could be music, the music of subatomic particles. Well, let's now jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. You know, when the vaccines were first talked about uh, several months ago, Scientists were hoping that it would be maybe 70% effective, 75, 80% effective. In controlled studies, they found out that it was 95% effective. But could that number hold up once you have tens of millions of people being vaccinated, not just a few hundred or a few thousand? And the answer is yes. These vaccines are 95% effective. This is far beyond the expectations that scientists uh, we're hoping for. And it also means that we could be gradually turning the corner. 31% of the U.S. population has now been fully vaccinated. 
44% have at least one shot. And so that's the good news. However, there's always some bad news too. The bad news is that the infection rate has not dropped appreciably in the last month or so. And scientists are puzzling why. It, sh it should drop as well, but it's not. It's stabilizing. It's plateauing, possibly because more young people are being infected and young people are letting their guard down. Plus the fact that some people just don't want to get vaccinated, period. End of story, right? That's it for them. And also a new strain from England is much more communicable than in the past. But the real danger is the mutant varieties from South Africa and Brazil. They could be a game changer in this whole calculus. And that's why Pfizer is already saying that next year there may have to be a booster shot to protect us against these mutant strains. And also, as I mentioned last week, India. Parts of India are being paralyzed because the outbreak is out of control. What happened there? Just a few months ago, it seemed that India was a model country. But what happened was they let their guard down. They thought they had passed the peak. And remember, this virus grows exponentially fast. We're not used to that. We're used to things linearly evolving. You double the time, you double the impact. But no, exponentially it could spiral out of control within a matter of weeks. And that's what happened in India. Now, why should you care? It's very far away, these countries, because these, these outbreaks represent a crucible to create new mutant varieties of the, the disease. So in other words, the more this virus gets out of control, the more opportunity it has to mutate, and then eventually it comes back and hits you. So in other words, what happens halfway around the world has a definite impact and it could be just within a matter of weeks or months that it lands right on your doorstep. So let's hope that these countries don't let their guard down, because if you do, this thing starts all over again. Also, let's say a few things about outer space. We have the battle of the billionaires. The richest man in the world is Jeff Bezos of Amazon. The second richest man in the world is Elon Musk of SpaceX. And they both have competing rocket programs. Elon Musk is ahead. Elon Musk and SpaceX has racked up a series of flawless missions to the International Space Station, three recent missions with astronauts on board, many more missions that were unmanned, and delivered supplies to the International Space Station. And Elon Musk, of course, has visions of going to Mars. Then we have Jeff Bezos of Blue Origins. His rocket program does not have the long list of successes that SpaceX does. But look, he's the richest man in the world, and he's been able to get a coalition of different aerospace organizations to back him. But he has yet he has yet to launch astronauts into outer space. So both of them are competing for the lunar lander. So let me explain. Boeing is building the SLS booster rocket capable of taking our astronauts to the moon sometime after 2024. But then the question is, once you're up there in outer space, you got to land on the moon. And that's where the lunar lander comes in. That is a $2.9 billion contract to create the lunar lander. At first, NASA wanted to have a competition. 
competition between Blue Origins and SpaceX. But because of budget cuts, NASA cannot afford to have two competing programs. So they said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." let's look at the track record. SpaceX has a tremendous track record of success after success after success. So they awarded the contract, not surprisingly, to SpaceX. But then Blue Origin says, now, wait a minute. We're in the game, too. We also have rockets, even though they don't have the impressive success rate as SpaceX. Well, some people say this is all a byproduct of going commercial. In other words, once upon a time, NASA had a monopoly. What NASA said, that was it, folks. No ifs, ands, or buts. Now we want competition. And there's benefits to that. Competition means that costs go, costs go down. Billionaires put up their own money. They gamble with their funds to reach for the stars. And competition helps to increase the edge that these two sides have. But let's face it, there's a downside to that too, because after all, the bottom line is money, and they're in it for a profit, not for the greater glory of the human race, but for a profit. That's the bottom line. Well, we'll see how it plays out, but get used to it. There could be more of this, because as we allow private enterprise to drive down the cost of space travel, it means that one day, well, maybe mom and dad will go into outer space. But it does mean that we're going to see competition and egos are going to be involved as well. Speaking about egos, Elon Musk told the blunt truth about going to Mars. People will die, he said. Let's be blunt about this. The rate of rocket misfire after 60 years of uh, throwing rockets into outer space is about 1%. Now think of the space shuttle program of old. The space shuttle program had about 200 launches. How many of them backfired and killed astronauts, 14 astronauts? 1%. In other words, we had two booster rocket failures out of 200 missions, 1% of the time. And even as we fire more and more rockets into outer space, we still can't get it down much below 1% of the time. And so going to outer space is not a Sunday picnic. It's made out to be, but there's a danger of overselling the technology. And that's why I think what Elon Musk said is actually a good thing. It primes the people to realizing that, hey, people may die going to the planet Mars. Now, Remember when the first space shuttle blew up? Ronald Reagan was going to get on the telephone and call Christy McAuliffe in outer space, a school teacher, and it was going to be great headlines, great publicity for the space shuttle. Then it blew up on international TV. Well, after that, people began to realize, well, maybe we oversold the space shuttle program. There were calls to cancel the space shuttle program, which would have been a disaster. But the point being is you have to be careful. You don't want to oversell your technology. Look at nuclear power. Back in the 50s and 60s, people said that commercial nuclear power plants are, quote, too cheap to meter. In other words, electricity would be almost for free. Boy, was that wrong as we saw when Three Mile Island happened. And look at Japan now. Uh, it has three melted nuclear power plants. And it may take another 40 or so more years to bring it under control, costing billions upon billions of wasted dollars. And so it's a good thing, I think, that Elon Musk warned the American people that, hey, 
Don't think that outer space is a Sunday picnic. There are risks involved. For example, the risk due to radiation, weightlessness, micrometeorites. The world's record for being continuously in outer space is a little over one year. But a mission to Mars would take two years, nine months to get there, a few months to do reconnaissance and wait for the time to come back, and then nine months to come back. So in other words, two years for the shortest mission to the red planet. And that's why we have to prepare ourselves for the worst if it happens and we don't overreact. And speaking about Mars, I'd like to say congratulations to the scientists at NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The Mars Ingenuity Helicopter has now completed its fourth, its fourth flight on the red planet. And it sailed for two minutes, two minutes in a flawless maneuver around the red planet. Now you may say to yourself, well, what's the big deal? First of all, the Wright brothers back in 1903 their airplane sailed for 12 seconds, just 12 seconds, but it changed world history. Created airplanes, a whole industry for war, for peace. It changed the way we view transportation and the planet. And the same thing with the Mars Ingenuity probe. Remember that the rovers are good. It gives you close-up views of the rocks on Mars, but it cannot go to most of the planet. It cannot go to the polar ice caps, simply too dangerous, and perhaps there are frozen microbial life forms in the ice caps. We'll never know. Plus, craters, mountaintops, chasms, all these interesting features, the rovers cannot go because they're simply too dangerous. Rovers can go only at a very slow rate on smooth surfaces. The flatter, the better. And that's where the helicopter comes in. Because the helicopters can easily go over rough terrain, over volcanic rock, over valleys, and go to the polar ice caps. Some of the most interesting features on the Martian surface are in areas which are inaccessible to the rovers. And so that's the significance of this event. Imagine one day fleets, fleets of rovers scouring over the surface of Mars, looking for potential landing sites, looking for potential hazards, places to put a Mars base, maybe even one day create a mining operation, one day create an agricultural farm. Possibilities are endless once you can master flying in the atmosphere. And that was no mean feat. The scientists at Jet Propulsion Laboratory had to deal with an atmosphere which is only 1%, 1% the atmospheric density of the planet Earth, meaning that helicopters have to spin at least five times faster than normal just to get up into the air. And so I'd like to say congratulations for NASA. And what's next? Well, some people are already saying that one day, one day when we go to the moons of Jupiter, we want to put a submarine, a submarine under the ice cover of Europa because there's an ocean of liquid water orbiting the planet Jupiter. That's perhaps for another future exploration program. And now let's say a few things about the medical front. On exploration, we've had a number of programs about Alzheimer's disease. Pandemics may come and go. 
but Alzheimer's disease could be the disease of the century because the population of the world is aging. And that's going to change the whole medical terrain for decades to come. And we've profiled a number of very interesting discoveries about how Alzheimer's works. But the question is, how do you cure it? Well, here's news from the medical front, from Albert Einstein Medical School, that gives one hope that maybe one day we'll have a way of curing Alzheimer's disease. Well, first of all, what causes Alzheimer's disease? We don't know for sure, but it has something to do with amyloid proteins, beta and tau. These amyloid proteins, for reasons we don't quite understand, gum up. Proteins fold in correctly. They, they form clumps, and it basically paralyzes the brain, starting with the, uh, starting with the hippocampus of the brain, which governs short-term memories. That's why your long-term memory may be intact. A person with Alzheimer's disease may remember what they did as children, but what they did just a few minutes ago may elude them because Alzheimer's disease attacks the hippocampus of the brain, which controls short-term memory. Well, how does it work? We're not sure, but there is a chemical called CMA, which is important for cleaning out the... Uh, misshapen or deformed protein molecules of amyloid protein beta and tau. So in other words, CMA is like a vacuum cleaner doing household chores, just cleaning out the misshapen, deformed protein molecules. As we age, as we age, CMAs become less effective. In fact, between the age of 70 and 80, we have 30% less CMAs circulating in our bodies. So some people are saying, aha, maybe that's a cause and effect. So they did a test on mice. They genetically bred mice that have, a, have an impaired CMA system, so they don't have much CMA circulating in their blood. And sure enough, these mice begin to exhibit the signs of early Alzheimer's disease. Memory began to falter. Walking ability began to become uh, jeopardized. And they began to, well, act like old mice, impaired mice, mice with Alzheimer's disease. And then the scientists then found the drug that would mimic CMA. They injected the drug into mice, and it was like magic. All of a sudden, the memory of the mice got better. All of a sudden, they didn't limp like they used to. All of a sudden, they begin to act like, well, young mice. So this is rather amazing because for the first time, at least for mice, let's be clear about that, but at least for mice, for the first time, we've had a proven reproducible method, heavily tested by Albert Einstein Medical School, that reverses the effects of Alzheimer's disease, at least in animals. So can we declare victory? No. There are many steps to be negotiated because therapies that work in animals sometimes do not transfer to humans, and that's a big disappointment. So sometimes announcement is made that we found a new breakthrough in mice, but it does not transfer to humans, and then people begin to get cynical and not believe these press releases. But this is a tantalizing clue, a tantalizing clue that maybe, just maybe we're onto something.
that this housekeeping drug, this CMA, has to be boosted so that it does its work of clearing out the misshapen, deformed, and ineffective protein molecules, basically the amyloid protein beta and tau. For example, there's one theory that says that exactly what is it about beta amyloid beta and tau that causes it to mess up? Well, proteins are very complicated objects. If you look at a picture of a protein, it consists of thousands of different kinds of atoms all stuck together in a strange way. So the protein has to fold up correctly in order to do its magic. But sometimes the protein molecule folds up incorrectly, and that causes it to fail with its primary function. Then when the misshapen protein molecule touches another protein molecule, it causes that molecule to fold up incorrectly too. Well, as you can imagine, starting with just one misshapen protein molecule, it touches others, so you have two, then four, then eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, and boom, you have a runaway disease. So this disease is not based on a virus. It's not based on a bacteria. It's simply based on the misfolding of proteins. And so this new idea is, if Alzheimer's is caused by misfolding protein molecules so they cannot do their function properly, then why not clean them out? Instead of trying to unfold them correctly, that's too complicated. Why don't we simply use nature's way to clear out these misshapen protein molecules? And that's where this new drug comes in. It's called CA, and it seems to work. It seems to work at least in mice. But again, as I said before, we have to be cautious because many times what works in the animal kingdom does not necessarily transfer to human beings. But this is one of the first tantalizing clues that we may, just may, have a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Now, this means a lot for me because, you see, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease, and it was horrible because in late stages, your loved ones don't even recognize you. You stare at them. They stare back at you without remembering who are you. And after a certain point, they don't even remember who they are. They've lost their sense of identity. Now think about that. They struggle for so many years trying to provide for their children. They try so hard to be a good parent. They try so hard to make things right for everybody. And then they lose their most precious gift, their own memory. They don't even remember who they are. So I would hope that we get these drugs confirmed for humans. I hope that we find out the genetic basis of how these things work. And also we find out how we can one day perhaps reverse the effects of his Alzheimer's disease. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to bring on Dr. Robert Hagen about astrobiology. What does science say about the possibility of life in outer space? Is it possible that life can germinate in the deep regions of outer space? We'll find out as we talk to Dr. Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis, 
about life in the universe. Stay tuned. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. Our special guest in the second half of this program is Dr. Robert Hagen. He's an astrobiologist. We're going to talk about life in outer space. You know, I just completed a grueling national book tour speaking about my book, the God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And I got a lot of feedback. And a lot of people began to ask, well, of what use would a theory of everything do for aliens in outer space? And I tell them that when I work on this theory, it's gratifying knowing that perhaps on the other end of the Milky Way galaxy, another alien is probably writing down the same equations that I am in different notations. And so physics is universal, not only that, but at a certain point when you start to go to the God equation, that is the unified field theory, modern physics begins to break down at those fantastic energies. So in other words, phenomena that are usually beyond the laws of physics become possible once you have an advanced civilization in outer space. You see, our equations work very well going up to a black hole, going up to near the Big Bang. But these equations break down at the instant of the Big Bang and at the very center of a black hole. You cannot say that this, this is disallowed by the laws of physics because the laws of physics themselves, the known laws of physics, begin to break down. Now, when you discuss aliens with scientists, usually you entertain the now, if you were to talk aliens to a scientist, usually you're met with the giggle factor. That is, they start to giggle, their eyes roll up to the heavens, and they start to shake their head. And why is that? Because most scientists will say that the distance between stars is so great that it would simply take too long for an alien civilization to go across the heavens. So, it's not possible, they say. But you see, that assumes that the aliens were maybe just a few hundred years more advanced than us. Let's say that they are thousands, millions of years more advanced than us. Then new laws of physics begin to open up at something called the Planck energy. The Planck energy is the energy of the Big Bang, the energy found at the center of a black hole. And at that point, the so-called known laws of physics break down. Like, for example, you can't go faster than the speed of light. That's what an alien would have to do if they can reach the Earth from a distant star. Normally, it's impossible. But in general relativity, there's a loophole. When you start to add quantum effects, it's possible that a hole in space and time could open up. And perhaps they could use that tunnel 
that wormhole, that gateway, as a way to go faster than the speed of light. Now, this, of course, is not for us. We're talking about the Planck energy, which is a quadrillion times more powerful than our most powerful machine, the Large Hadron Collider, outside Geneva, Switzerland. But again, for the moment, think of what a civilization may be capable of if they are millions of years ahead of us. And they have the God equation. So their equations go right up to the Planck energy. These equations allow them to perhaps play with the universes, play with space and time itself. Now, of course, our understanding of the God equation is not advanced enough to settle these questions. All I'm saying is, we have to keep an open mind about these things because the so-called known laws of physics break down as we approach the God equation. With the God equation, with the unified field theory, we'll then begin to answer these questions definitively once and for all. So anyway, let's bring on our special guest today. He's Dr. Robert Hagen, and he's the author of a book, Genesis, about the origin of life in outer space. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? Oh man, I was so excited about nature when I was young. We had a house in Cleveland, Ohio that backed onto a swamp. And my brother and I would go tramping back and we'd collect butterflies and we'd collect frogs and we'd collect crayfish. And at night, I love looking up at the sky and the stars. And so my parents bought me a telescope. And the first one was really small, but then I got larger and larger telescopes and ended up building my own. So I loved looking at the sky and Saturn was my favorite. So nature just turned me on. When I was in high school, I moved to northern New Jersey, and northern New Jersey is a, just a gold mine for minerals. They're famous mineral localities, and I had a teacher who pointed me in the direction and said, go to Franklin, New Jersey, go to Patterson, New Jersey, collecting minerals, and that's what really got me into mineralogy, which is my main field right through college. Okay. Now, you are an expert in an area that is not familiar to the average person, and that is something called astrobiology. So what is astrobiology? Oh, astrobiology is one of the most amazing new integrated fields in science. It's the study of the origin of life, the distribution of life in the universe, and also discusses what the future of life might be in the universe. This is a field that has been brought to life by major new funding through NASA and the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is based at the Ames Research Center in California. Okay, so your book is entitled Genesis, The Scientific Quest for Life's Origin. Let's begin now in the year 1953 uh, with an experiment done by a graduate student uh, under the direction of his advisor uh, by the name of Stanley Miller. Could you tell us a little bit about that experiment and how that led to a paradigm shift with regards to how we view Genesis? Boy, Professor, what a transformation that was. Stanley Miller, young 23-year-old graduate student at the University of Chicago, his mentor was Harold Urey, who had won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of deuterium, the heavy hydrogen isotope of heavy water. So Urey was incredibly famous. Miller was unknown. Miller came to Urey and said, I want to try an experiment to make the molecules of life from nothing more than a primitive atmosphere. Now, Urey had proposed the primitive atmosphere consisted of hydrogen, methane, which is the natural gas you burn on your stove, and ammonia, that's the strong-smelling chemical from ammonia cleaners. And he mixed those together with water and just ran electric sparks through a piece of glassware. 
And lo and behold, in just two or three days, that clear, colorless solution began turning shades of pink and then brown and then black gunk started getting deposited on the sides of the glassware. Miller had made a whole range of organic molecules that were basic building blocks of life. The amino acids that make our proteins, the sugars that make our carbohydrates, all sorts of molecules that form cell membranes called lipids. And not only that, a few of the bases that are called, these are the molecules that are key components of DNA and RNA. Many of the most fundamental building blocks of life just appeared out of a simple primitive atmosphere and sparks like lightning. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Uh, what we're talking about is getting a flask with horrible chemicals like ammonia, methane, hydrogen, sending a spark through it, uh, essentially replicating what they thought was the early atmosphere of the Earth bombarded by X-rays and lightning bolts and so on and so forth. And bingo, out of that came the building blocks of proteins, amino acids. So what was the reaction of the scientific community, which before that experiment uh, was really um, basically had no theory as to how organic chemicals could form out of nothing? It's true. This was a bombshell. The scientific community looked at this and said, wow, this must be how life originated. If in just a couple of days you can go from a simple atmosphere to all these building blocks of life, then given millions of years, the early ocean would just have been chock-a-block full of all kinds of organic molecules. And that was what led to this idea of the primordial soup, an early broth of just the right building blocks for life. So people thought, gee, it's just going to be a matter of 10 or 20 years and we'll know everything there is to know about the origin of life. Of course, that was a little overly optimistic. It's, it's taken us a lot longer and we're still a long way from knowing. But this was the first experiment, the seminal experiment that set us on the path to believing that there is a chemical origin of life going from the simplicity of a geochemical world to the complexity of the biochemical world. Okay, so back in the 50s, they thought that the early atmosphere of the Earth was a hostile brew of ammonia, methane, hydrogen, and things like that. However, today, we're not so sure. That's right. Uh, today, many groups have proposed a different scenario uh, for the formation of life on the Earth, very similar, of course, to what uh, Miller and Urey had, but with a different chemical composition of the soup. Uh, what is now the leading theory as to what the atmosphere and the oceans look like back then? Well, the, the one thing about the atmosphere is that Yuri's idea of an atmosphere with hydrogen and methane is much to what's called reducing. We think that it was a much more chemically neutral atmosphere, including things like nitrogen, the dinitrogen gas that makes up most of our atmosphere today, perhaps some CO2, uh, perhaps uh, other minor components like carbon monoxide, maybe a little bit of methane, maybe some hydrogen, but not as chemically reactive as the atmosphere that Miller proposed. Nevertheless, when you put sparks through any of those atmospheres, you still get very interesting products. So the basic concept of the Miller-Urey experiment is certainly valid. But there are other environments, as you suggest. Okay. Now, um, the Alvin submarine, uh, which was used to probe the Titanic riding on the bottom of the ocean and also to retrieve a hydrogen bomb uh, dropped off the coast of Palomar, Spain, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, was also used to investigate what are called volcano vents. And some people say that perhaps volcano vents 
is where life got started. It's one theory, but could you elaborate on that theory? Yeah, the idea here is that life requires a couple of simple ingredients. It requires water, some kind of water-rich environment. It involves, it requires energy of some kind. Now, Miller said lightning, other people say sunlight, but you also have the energy from the Earth's inner heat, and you require carbon and other carbon-based compounds, what are called organic molecules. Turns out one of the most exciting environments on Earth where all three of those ingredients come together are the deep ocean vents, the hydrothermal vents, or the black smokers, as they're sometimes called, on the bottom of the ocean. And these were discovered in the late 1970s by, this, by scientists diving in the submersible Alvin off the Pacific coast, completely unexpected to find not just these hydrothermal vents, these undersea smokers, if you will, with, with all sorts of mineral-rich hot fluids coming out, but to find living communities far, far below the influence of the sun, where it's totally dark all the time, and yet life thrives because of all that energy coming out of the ocean floor. Now, when we talk about energy, uh, we realize that we mammals get our energy by eating plants. So we mammals could not have been the first form of life on the Earth. But plants, in turn, get their uh, energy from sunlight in a very complicated process called photosynthesis, which also could not have been the original energy-generating device because it's very complicated. And we're talking about creating life from nothing almost. So you're saying essentially that the energy supply could have been uh, this very caustic environment on the bottom of the ocean? That's the theory, and here's why people think that might be so. In our bodies, the energy, for example, from plants or from sunlight, is converted through a process called oxidation-reduction reactions. These are reactions just like that occur in a battery, your flashlight batteries. You're basically transferring electrons from one group of chemicals to another. And that exact same process occurs deep on the ocean floor because very what are called reducing fluids come out from the, below the ocean surface and they hit very oxidizing water in the ocean. And that couple, the oxidation and the reduction together, causes chemical reactions, just like in a battery, just like in your body. That's what we think the very first energy for life was, just like a battery driven by the Earth. Okay, now the astronomer Fred Hoyle had a different theory. In fact, he was quite the contrarian uh, within uh, cosmological circles. And he said the following, that the Earth is four and a half billion years old, roughly speaking, and during the first billion years was the age of asteroids and meteors, constant bombardment by debris from outer space for about a billion years. We see that on the moon even today. And as a consequence, if life formed in the oceans, the oceans would have boiled off. And therefore, life could not have gotten started within the first billion years. So after the age of meteors ends, boom, bingo, life gets started very soon. So he says this means that life could not have started on the Earth. It came from outer space in the form of spores. So he called this the panspermia theory. But what are your thoughts about the panspermia theory? Well, at first glance, it sounds like a pretty crackpot idea, you know, life being seeded from outer space. But a lot of scientists are now taking this very seriously. I think there are two possibilities. One is that life is a cosmic imperative. It arises everywhere, and it arises very quickly. I've heard scientists say life comes about in a million years or a thousand years. There's one very famous scientist in the field who even says it takes two weeks 
Well, if that's true, then life would have arisen on Earth and there's no problem. But what if life does take hundreds of millions of years? We have a planetary neighbor, Mars, that was habitable long before Earth, much less in the way of bombardment by meteorites, much more benign in terms of its temperature early on, and it had oceans or lakes. We now know that from these recent discoveries by NASA. So Mars was habitable hundreds of millions of years before Earth. It's very possible that life arose on Mars, and then there's this amazing mechanism. If Mars gets hit by a Mars-sized asteroid, say something that's 10 or 20 or 30 kilometers across, there will be, it's been shown, there'll be rocks thrown up into space, and those rocks will be relatively unheated, relatively unstressed. They could contain microbes, and those microbes could then be brought to Earth by Mars meteorites. So there are a whole group of scientists that are giving very serious consideration to the idea that all life on Earth is Mars life, because Mars was habitable earlier. And we may know that if in the next decade or two when we go to Mars and we look specifically for life, we may find Earth-like life or fossils of Earth-like life on Mars that represent our ancestors. So if you want to see a Martian, you should simply look in a mirror. That's possible. Now, let me ask you a question that's bothered me for a long time, and that is the Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, but there's only one DNA molecule, rearranged in different ways, of course, but there's only one DNA. It has ATCG as the building blocks, nucleic acids. That's why we can eat anything on the Earth. We can eat sea urchins, we can eat insects, we can eat plants, even though we're separated by a tremendous evolutionary distance because we're all made out of the same molecule. Now, if the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and life gets started pretty quickly, then how come it didn't start again with another DNA and again and again? Why don't we see different DNAs? We only see ATCG. We only see a certain set of amino acids, and that's it. We've had now not just a few hundred million years, but we've had three and a half billion years of quiet oceans with no meteor impacts to speak of. So why don't we have many DNAs? Boy, Professor, you know, that's such a great question, and a lot of us are asking the question in this way. Is the chemistry that we see in life today inevitable? Or are there lots of alternative pathways? Well, if there are alternative pathways, why don't we see them? And the explanation that's most often given is that life was a competition. And once that first successful self-replicating cell with all of its proteins and DNA, that very efficient, very powerful mechanism, once that cell got started, then it divided in a flash. You know, microbes can divide in less than an hour. So you had one, then two, then four, then eight. And in a matter of weeks, the whole Earth was populated by that extremely successful self-replicating cell. And that cell ate everything else. You didn't have a chance. If you weren't the first on the block to know how to live and know how to reproduce, then you were going to get eaten because you were food. Uh, well, let me ask you a question then. Uh, food depends on proteins. Uh, proteins, in turn, depend upon a template, that is DNA template, to create the protein. But there are many proteins that nature has not used. Uh, there are many proteins that you can create that nature has not even thought of. So uh, why didn't another DNA get off the ground that was uneatable, unedible, that it was based on proteins that simply cannot be digested by our DNA, 
And it's not based on ATCG, the four nucleic acids, but it's based on a different set, uh, you know, PQRST or whatever. And it creates proteins that are undigestible by our cells, and therefore the two life forms should coexist. What are your thoughts? Well, I think partly that life has been very careful in the molecules it selects. For example, RNA uses ribose. DNA uses deoxyribose. Why those particular sugars? These are sugars with five carbon atoms, and there are dozens of different sugars with five carbon atoms. Why those? Well, it turns out there's actually a, an advantage to those molecules because of their particular shape, and people have shown that if you try to use other molecules, they don't work. So to a certain extent, the molecules that life uses are the best molecules for the job. But also, I think life is incredibly good at taking various other potential molecules and eating them. It's just amazing how life has used all different kinds. Anything in its environment that has energy, life has learned to eat. And I think it's just once you get one kind of life established, it's really hard to get a second competitive system going. It's sort of like the ultimate monopoly. You, you can imagine uh, some company makes the best car, the best computer, and other companies try to get started. But if that first company is so huge and so large, it just swallows up the competition and nothing else to get going. Sort of like the diamond monopoly of De Beers. You know, there's never been another big company making diamonds because De Beers buys them all up and swallows up the competition. Well, the reason I ask you this is because in science fiction movies, we always see aliens from out of space that want some very specific things. First of all, they want to eat us, meaning that they can digest our proteins, which I find remarkable. Second of all, they're going to want to mate with us, in which case they have basically the same DNA as us, literally. So they can interchange uh, DNA sequences with us. And I find this rather impossible. But what you're saying is that in some sense, DNA really is preferable. And that maybe when aliens from outer space land on the Earth, they're going to have DNA which is very similar to ours. Is that what you're saying? I think it's possible that some aspects of biochemistry will be very, very similar, maybe even DNA and RNA. But I think there will be very important differences. For one thing, we have what's called the genetic code. And that basically are sets of three genetic letters that match up to different amino acids, the building blocks of protein. I think that code may be wildly different if, even if it's there is a code on other worlds that it would be very different from ours, so I can't imagine there being that kind of unity. So there's some chance events, some chance chemical events in the origin of life, but I think there are also some aspects of origins that are going to be very similar from world to world. Okay, well, if you say that if another DNA got off the ground and our DNA basically ate up that DNA, then what happens when alien DNA reaches the Earth? Will our DNA consume molecule for molecule their DNA, or vice versa? Perhaps their DNA will consume ours. Well, that's a real good question. It depends on the building block molecules. I can imagine alien DNA. I can imagine alien proteins that are totally poisonous to us, and vice versa. It's also very possible that life on other worlds started with an opposite handedness. There is a, a very curious characteristic of life on Earth that all of the sugar molecules used in DNA and RNA are called right-handed. All the amino acids used in proteins are what are called left-handed. So there are mirror image molecules that our bodies can't use. In fact, that's one of, for dieting, there's a new product out. You can buy left-handed sugars, which taste sweet, but the body can't digest them. So this is one kind of artificial sweetener 
which gives you no calories. It's a great invention. It's a great idea. So if there were an alien life form that happened to be reversed, and they used left-handed sugars and right-handed amino acids, then they couldn't eat us, we couldn't eat them. I think we'd probably get along. Okay. Now let's get back to the Miller experiment, because there's a huge gap that we left unfilled. Miller showed that amino acids, in some sense, are for free. We see them in nebulas in outer space. We see them in the cores of meteors from outer space. Uh, Amino acids are out there in outer space. However, DNA is extremely complicated. If you look at a DNA molecule, you say to yourself, oh my God, look at that thing. And it would have taken an awful long time for Miller to get a DNA molecule off the ground. If he had done his experiment for maybe a billion years in that little test tube, then maybe he would have gotten one DNA molecule off the ground. So there's missing steps now. So some people say that before DNA, there was RNA. And before RNA, there was a even more primitive structures even before RNA. So what do we know about the gap between the amino acids that are for free that we see in the Miller experiment and RNA and DNA? This is probably the single biggest uncertainty in question, but there's so many great ideas out there. For one thing, as you say, RNA is a very complicated molecule. It's hard to imagine how it was synthesized from scratch in a prebiotic soup. Mineral surfaces may have helped. There are some minerals that attract ribose. There are some minerals that attract the bases. Um, But there are other neat ideas out there. In the book, Genesis, I describe an experiment by a person at our laboratory, a guy named Nick Platts, who realized that you could build up an RNA-like molecule from very, very simple building blocks, little cyclical molecules, the kinds of things that are produced when diesel exhaust burns or, or when you have a sooty fire. That soot itself, if you put it in water under just the right circumstances, will form tiny little stacks of molecules. And those stacks, if they're in just the right environment, will attract the bases, the four letters A, T, C, and G of DNA. And those bases can line up on top of each other, and you can actually make a RNA-like molecule from scratch on the primitive Earth. Now, it's very possible, I think, that this is the sort of intermediate step where you build something that's simple from simple building blocks, And that mimics what's going to become more and more complex. You add layers of complexity, gradual, one step at a time. So Nick Platt's idea is very, very powerful, um, and, and it's now being studied experimentally. That's the kind of thing people look for. You go from simplicity to complexity through a process known as emergence. Now if you go back, back, way back into the past, and what do we know about the most primitive DNA or RNA on the Earth? Oh, Professor, that's a wonderful question because it has to do with what are essentially the most primitive biochemical features. What are the chemical fossils that we find in modern life that point to the earliest life? And I think the conclusion is unambiguous. There are a few chemical pathways that are buried in every single living thing. One of those is RNA, the ability for RNA not only to store information and pass it on from one generation to the next, but also for RNA to improve or catalyze certain reactions. Another is a cycle of what is known as metabolism, that is taking energy and atoms from the surrounding and building up new molecules. There's something called the citric acid cycle that seems to be built into every living thing. And there are a few other chemical pathways, the ability to take nitrogen and convert it to ammonia, for example. That's also 
fundamental. That's a way of using the element nitrogen in biological systems. So there are a few chemical pathways that we find in every living thing, and those we believe are the most primitive chemical pathways that point us to something about the earliest life. And where are these organisms that are the most ancient, most primitive forms of life on the Earth? Are they in the bottom of the ocean? Right now, the most primitive organisms that we know of are all in very extreme environments, in places where the acidity is very high, in places where it's very cold, in hot, deep hydrothermal vents. And people have two ideas about that. One is the possible, very real possibility that life originated in one of these extreme environments. The other possibility is that life originated near the surface, like Stanley Miller would say, but because of those nasty asteroids and meteors and comets that kept blasting the surface, the only life that survived those last insults was life that had adapted to the deep, hot, protected environments within the Earth's crust. So either way, those are the most primitive organisms that we see today. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the second part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Our special guest today was Dr. Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis. And if you want to find out more about what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out about my latest international bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Don't miss it. Good day.